Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 13, Episode 4. Today I'm speaking with Baker Rose Wild, who grew up in Ecuador in a large Hispanic family and has spent time living in places such as Tibet, Greece, and Spain. She has worked professionally in and traveled Israel, Morocco, Lebanon, Italy, the United Kingdom, Portugal, and Mexico. Rose is a former human rights lawyer turned writer, chef, master food preserver, master gardener, and owner of Red Bread, a bakery in Los Angeles. Her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Edible LA Magazine, Cherry Bomb, and many other publications. She's been a regular on the Food Network, Cooking Channel, Taste Made, and NPR. She lives in Los Angeles, California with two dogs and nine chickens. For more inspiration, find her Instagram at Rosewild and Redbread. She has a new cookbook out today, Bread and Roses, 100 Grain Forward Recipes Featuring Global Ingredients and Botanicals. I'm going to take you now to my conversation with Rose Wild. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm speaking with baker, author, Rose Wild. Rose, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Now, for those who are listening, um, where, are you, where are you at in the world? Where, where are you located? I am located in sunny Los Angeles. Um, I live in West Adams with my two dogs and my nine chickens. Nice. What kind of chickens? Oh, all kinds. We were really going after the rainbow egg situation. So I we, love that. Yeah. <laughs> based on everyone's egg looking different. Mm -hmm. um, but also for like new chicken owners, I think that's actually smart because yeah. as you're learning about the health of your chickens, like it's easier to tell like who may not be laying and other kinds of things like that when you know whose egg is whose. But yeah, we love that's, them. That's brilliant. I love that. Can you share your story? Um, I want to. I want you to talk a little bit about your past as a human rights lawyer, and uh, um, you went from that to being a writer, chef, food preserver, master gardener, and now you're owner of your own bakery, Red Bread. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think it's you know an extremely traditional path <laughs> to go from being a lawyer to a baker. I've actually spent a lot of time in my day teaching people who made that professional transition. Um, and I think it's because we really like detail and we trust processes. Um, but I was working as a human rights lawyer for a couple of years out of law school um, and advising on a lot of community development issues and legislative work to protect uh, women, children, disabled, basically um, marginalized communities. And uh, I really took all that to heart when I decided to take a break and try to fill my own cup because it's a very hard industry to work in um, and just be exposed to so much trauma every day. Um, the world can be a hard place. Um, and I started baking again. It was something I'd always loved to do as a child. I had always, um, we moved around a lot. And so the first day of school was often my birthday as a late summer baby. And my mother taught me very young how to make cookies so I could kind of steal the class and like give cookies away and have a party. 
So I knew that like pastries were the fastest way to make friends. Um, and coming out of law school, like if you've never been to law school, you basically have no life. So I kind yeah. of fell into the same thing of like making cookies and going around my neighborhood and just like making new friends since I was suddenly in the world again. Um, and I just did more of this when I was taking a break from the uh, legal work I was doing. And uh, people really responded to it. And the real tipping point for me was when I made some bread. Um, it was the first time I'd made bread and um, I'm always going hard, never the easy way out. So instead of doing it with like yeast and white flour, I was like, I'm going to use whole grain and we're going to do it with sourdough. And if it's not magic, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, and it was incredible even before it went in the oven and I made one loaf the first day, seven loaves the next day, 36 loaves the next day after that and on and on and on. And by the end of the week, I just had like a hundred loaves and I gave them away. And, uh, the very next day I had a lot of knocks on my door asking if people could get more bread. And so I was like, well, I think this is viable for me to do for a moment while I keep taking a break. Uh, and I just sat down and used the skills I'd learned and I registered a business and like set up the ethos that I wanted that business to work around. And I really focused on that mimicking what I knew, which were principles of access and agency and giving back. So the same ideas of international development, creating strong communities, but doing it from a business perspective. Um, so we committed from the very beginning to give a percentage of all of our sales to the LA Food Bank. Um, so to this day, we've provided for 74,000 meals over the last uh, 12 years. Um, we worked closely with organizations in the community that were helping people get back on their feet or have a second chance, whether it was through homelessness or addiction. Um, we took on culinary externs who ultimately became our employees, who were fabulous employees. Um, and after leaving us, placed them in incredible restaurants around Los Angeles. Um, and we really took it to heart that like often people who grow the very food that we love don't have access to the high end, beautiful crafted foods that we as bakers and chefs can make. Um, so every week at the farmer's market in Santa Monica, which is the largest farmer's market in the nation, I would bring back a whole host of things that we had made from all the incredible stuff we'd bought the previous week and distribute it to the farmers. Um, oh, that must be amazing for them. It, it was nice. It was a good way for them to have breakfast because, you know, often they're getting up at four in the morning and yeah. very far and have something like nice and warm and to also see what they made transformed, I think is, is so magical. Um, and the bonus that I didn't see coming is that, um, suddenly all of them were giving me the things that they were just growing on their own that like they weren't bringing to sell, but like they were excited about. So I got to try all these really cool new vegetables and, and fruits that people were playing with that they were passionate about. And I think ultimately in any industry, but also in food, like you feed off each other's passion, that exchange, that's all food is about. And so that, um, that just made me really more excited to do what we started doing. So yeah. And then 12 years later, um, I'm still a baker, so I must like it. <laughs> I love that. I want to, ask you though um it doesn't sound like you know it was much of a career change really because you went from being a lawyer human rights lawyer and then you also worked as a gardener and a food preserver and then you had the uh red bread but it sounds like you transitioned a lot of the things you worked in 
in those earlier times to your your bakery now. Is that correct? Yeah, I feel like I am still using my law degree every day. I am making, I'm constantly thinking about like ways that we can empower people. And um, I did the Master Food Preserver Program and the Master Gardener Program at UCLA Extension. Um, and they are volunteer-based program. So the aim is to go into underserved communities and provide education. Um, and I think that we we underestimate how empowering food can be. When I was working strictly in law, so many of the issues that I covered working with these communities were access to food and just basic necessities. Um, and I think we can often then be blinded by the need we have immediately around us in our community and how much power we have to help and how much that help can like ripple and multiply. Um, so I think the same ethos have always driven me no matter what I've done. And it's because of that, that I think that I can sidestep to seemingly very different things, but it's very much the same. Um, you know, I recently wrote a cookbook. It was basically a really, really long, much more colorful memo. So <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I love that. For those who don't know, memo is legal speak for memorandum, which is usually a really boring document. <laughs> but yeah, I only, I didn't realize other people wouldn't know that. I worked in a legal library for a long time, so I know a lot of these terms. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as you know, we we legal minds like to define terms, so I'm always yep. aware of when someone might need to define a term. I like it. <laughs> So you were working with sourdough early on back in the 2010. Now we've we've come a long way and sourdough became a national obsession during the quarantine and people now still are, you know, we have a lot of breadheads now, but it wasn't so much, you know, 10, actually now 13 years ago. Um, what, were, what was the learning curve for you with that? And, and where did you kind of get your resources to learn about using sourdough? Yeah, I love that you bring that up because it it I suddenly feel like my job is a lot easier after the pandemic because people did invest in this craft and they have a lot of those terms at the ready. But 10 years ago, when I first launched in uh, 2011, it was the height of people being terrified of gluten, not knowing what yeah. it was, but being yeah. so scared and everyone was abandoning bread. Um, and not only from my work in law and food systems around the world, but in my travels, I had just seen that commonly the main basis for food for most cultures around the world is some type of grain, is some type of bread. So it couldn't possibly be the bread that, that was problem. It had to be what we were doing to it. So I think it was helpful for me to have those experiences with other cultures to check the experience in this country, because often we forget how different we are from the rest of the world, especially when it comes to our food system. Our food system is very much geared towards um, uh, manufacturing and industry and stability on the shelves and less towards diversity and um, uh, a rich uh, region in terms of the fields and a lot of fresh things on your plate, which is how a lot of the rest of the world is, is still operating. Um, and sorry, I forgot where I was going. <laughs> no, it's okay. Like just the, um, the evolution of, uh, your usage of sourdough and what you've oh, learned. Oh, yes. Time. 
Um, so I, I again was like, okay, well then how does most of the world make bread? And it's through sourdough because having things like leaveners on the shelf is an economic access issue, right? Like we have that economic access and that's not always true. Um, so I just wanted to make what I thought in my head is real bread. Like if I could, again, define the term as as succinctly and purely as possible, very much coming at it from that legal perspective, bread was flour, salt, water. So I was gonna have to figure this out. Um, so I just became obsessed with it. I, I took out, I researched what books were really, um, well thought of uh, addressing bread and sourdough. I got 10 of them. I laid them all out on the recipes that they were similar, like they all had in common. I read them all at once. I took notes. I pulled out what was in common, what seemed subjective, what seemed perspective, what I might try, and sort of just pulled all that data together and put it in a more streamlined document of what I had absorbed for it, which again is is very much a legal approach of taking yeah. tons of resources. Absolutely, and, yeah. And then creating a short form memo. So I was really applying those skills that I had earned through hard work uh, in law school to to bread. And so I often joke that like I lawyered baking. That's how yeah. I am. I am today. Um, but that's still an approach I use today. And I think that um, I think it's a good one because, you know, there are things in cooking and baking that like can be changed and there are things that can't be changed. Um, and you can't know those from looking at one recipe or without having like years of work. But one way you can kind of leapfrog is by looking at multiple resources at once and really studying the differences between those recipes. Um, so from there, I made a recipe that I liked and I made the bread and I was, I guess, a lucky person that the first one that came out was incredible. It was perfect. I loved it. Everyone loved it. It wasn't flat or a doorstop. Those came later. Like I've not always been a brilliant baker. I've had multiple failures, but I did have quite a bit of beginner's luck. And that really propelled me forward into that. Um, so it was a lot of book knowledge. Uh, and then several years later, actually my mother who since passed away came to visit me and like worked a day in the bakery. And I like showed her everything that I'd learned and everything. And she was so sweet and listened so nicely. And then when we were having dinner that night, she told me about how when I was very young and my parents ran a restaurant called The Good Earth in Florida, she was oh, in wow. charge. She yeah. was in she was in charge of the bread baking and she baked like 70 loaves a week. Wow. For seven years just to give away to the community. She also baked the bread for the restaurant, but that was something that they had built into their restaurant. And I didn't even know that um, because I was way too young and it didn't come up when I was growing up. Um, but I think that, you know, that sort of rewrote in my head too. Well, was it beginner's luck or is this deeply in my genes, not only to make bread, but to make it something that builds community. And then I became fully convinced when she told me that, my grandfather, her father was a lawyer and his obsession to relax himself was to make bread. <laughs> so this is destiny. I'm just the first one brave enough to make it my full-time gig. I love that. How it's kind of been in the family. 
what is your um process been from i mean how has red bread changed over the years since you started it Red bread has taken a lot of forms. Uh, you know, initially uh, I started off on an electric bike in Venice Beach um, and would just have people order online. Um, so it was really in the beginning of Instagram too. And we were testing that as a selling model. Um, and it was a lot harder then. Now it's kind of breezy to put something up and have people purchase. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I was supplying to little cafes and we started the market. Uh, eventually, we did a Kickstarter campaign and opened a brick and mortar on Washington and Lincoln for a couple years, um, which was really special. We won a lot of awards while we were in that location for like best bagel, best rye bread, best pie, best cake. Um, and again, I think what set us apart was like using whole grains and using sourdough to leaven things beyond bread, which was also really different at the time. People are playing with that a lot more. Um, so there was a lot of education we had to do back then, like joyful education to get people caught up on like why this was special, why it mattered. Uh, but I did notice that even just looking at it, people knew it was different. Like, I think it's visceral, the reaction when you see good food that like actually looks like good food um, and is not like camera food. Uh, and then we had that um, place for a couple of years and uh, eventually we closed it down in order to open a larger thing, which we couldn't find the right location. And I wanted to do some more like R&D because we'd been running Red Bread for like four or five years by then. So I did a stint at uh, a whole and ample butchery. I worked uh, for there for a year and learned butchery. And then I worked uh, stage at a couple places around the country, like Stapered Provisions in San Francisco and Elski in Chicago for a couple days here and there. And then came back to LA and ended up working in fine dining at dinner because I felt like I kind of knew the morning and I wanted to see what we could do with nighttime things. So I ran the pastry and bread programs at Manuela downtown LA, at Rustic Canyon under Jeremy Fox, and at Rosso Blue and then helped Evan Funky open Mother Wolf um, and really just tried to instill the same values of like whole grains and everything, really deeply flavored um, desserts and breads that were rustic and really real and sourdough based. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I decided that I wanted to kick back on Red Bread in full and offer cookies and breads and especially cakes because it had this strong feeling you know we were also scared we were also isolated and cakes are something you associate with gathering with joy and it became like this act in order to offset that sorrow like have a cake for any reason have a small cake have a big cake eat it over zoom with your friends um in much the same way that I felt galvanized when everyone was like, gluten is terrifying to like bring bread back to the conversation. When everyone was yeah. scared during the pandemic, I felt galvanized to bring back joy and that meant cake. Uh, so now that's what I've been doing the last couple of years is doing a lot more private events, a lot of weddings, collaborating with a lot of brands to create recipes for them and still doing like really large fun celebration cakes. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I wanted to ask you, um, what are, for the people that are listening who are not familiar with bakery running and how it operates, what are some of the uh, rewards and challenges of running a bakery? Wow. Um, well, rewards are easy. There's always delicious things lying around to eat. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, I think that, um, you know, it, uh, it, especially in comparison to restaurants, I think that bakeries offer a much more um, communal environment. There are few tasks yeah. you can do in a bakery that don't require more than one person. Um, yeah. You have like if you're making cookie dough, you're making 400 at once and you need two scoopers. You need someone to help you or bread. You need someone to be folding while you're shaping um, as a restaurant. You really like you're in charge of one station and that's all on you. So even though you're around people, um, I found that sometimes isolating. Um, so I think there's a, a wonderful community in Baker's. Um, there's this real sense of generosity I find among bakers too. So really good people, good scrappy food to eat around um, and really good community. I think the drawbacks um, for most people, uh, let alone getting into the business, um, is just the hours. Uh, you know, having your whole life start at two in the morning and you're done by eight can be really hard for a lot of people. I mean, all people, honestly, but some people adjust to it better than others. Um, I'm a real big fan of the European penchant for doing fresh bread at five o'clock and then get old bread in the morning for toast. I don't know why we flipped it in this country, but it means terrible hours for bakers <laughs> to get fresh bread at eight in the morning. Um, and then just from a business perspective, like running, running a bakery it can be extremely difficult because we naturally, we, we place these subjective values on food and we are often willing to pay a really high amount for a sit down dinner with, um, a small steak and some vegetables and we're really paying for the whole experience. So our yeah. mind like, okay, this is okay. But going to get uh, a loaf of bread, a loaf of sourdough, that sourdough likely took 36 hours, way longer than that dinner you bought. But it's very difficult to get people to see the same value level. And that's changed. Like people are starting to understand that like bread is actually really like foundational and nutritious if treated correctly. Um, you know, sourdough helps break down the complex protein so you can eat them easier. Whole grain assists you in having just more nutrition and more flavor. And those breads are now um, getting a, a price that is more reflective of their cost and labor. Um, but I think that's just true. Like all of these pastries we buy in the morning, we don't want them to be more than $5, but like there's butter in there and fresh fruit and nuts and like all the really delicious things of life. Um, so that can be a real struggle to like, just uh, stay afloat. Um, and also, you know, you want to hire good people, you want to give them a living wage. So I think these are things common just in running a, a food business that the margins are really thin. So uh, tip well, be nice and support all your local restaurants and bakeries. There was something that, um, in your book that I really thought was interesting. Um, you talk about your zero waste policy that you have with red bread. Uh, talk about that zero waste policy and how you adopted it. 
Um, so my zero waste approach before this was really like a coined phrase um, really came from being uh, a product of food insecurity as a child. Um, my mother was a single mother after my parents uh, got divorced and we didn't have a lot of resources. And I just watched my mom be this incredible, graceful and economic cook and never throw anything out, be really intentional, intentional about what she was cooking and how she was cutting. So she got the most out of everything. She uh, introduced me to a lot of things that I saw then mimicked in the fine, the finer restaurants that I worked in, like saving all the scraps from vegetables to make a stock, um, using all those strawberry tops to reduce into a syrup and flavoring a natural soda. Um, and so I just thought this was how you cooked. I didn't really know that this was like a more specific approach. Um, so that has always been in there. And then I think as, again, as I was exposed to more uh, cultures worldwide and, and saw a very similar approach because this is what you have. So you use all of it um, was just the default. Uh, and that just really cemented that that was the way that I wanted to cook. Uh, and then uh, being able to work in a lot of restaurants that also reflected that, I was able to get some even more high-end uh, skills and really explore that less as a way to, you know, make sure you're not throwing anything away and more as a way to use alchemy to transform things. Um, especially when I was working at Rustic Canyon, Jeremy Fox is also a big fan of zero waste. And there was sort of this non-stated, but heavily coveted prize of his uh, approval you could win if you figured out how to make something with like nothing but scraps. Um, and actually one of the re uh, recipes in the book, the vegetable funfetti cake is a product of that, of using leftover citrus peels and beet tops and carrots and parsley stems to create a funfetti cake that is basically a salad which is also where I started my uh, motto of cake is salad. So <laughs> it's all, like it all that. ties together. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> what would advice would you give to other businesses that want to adopt this uh, kind of policy? It's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, if this is not something that you've uh, been exposed to for a long time, it can be a challenge to shift your mindset to think of that. Um, but I think that any good business when someone's prepping, if you, you know, you want your people to work clean, so you're always going to have a, a waste bowl there for to collect everything that's the scraps as you're prepping food. Um, I think one of the easiest things to do is to kind of set yourself up with a couple more waste bowls or, uh, you know, third pans or whatever, and separate your scraps. And at the end of your prep, just look at them and try and use fresh eyes of like, what could I do with this now that it's not, you know, three pounds of beet scraps mixed in with everything else and like, can't really do anything. What can I do with it now that it's here? Oh, I can make a hummus, right? Like there's something I can do to transform it where it doesn't have to be the prettiest thing um, or the nicest cut. Uh, so I think those are really good ways and to, to start small, you know, and competition is useful for innovation. So you can have it as like a small challenge inside your business, tie it to family meal. That was one of the 
things I did at my restaurant was to make it like a little challenge within family meal. Um, this is another term of art. Family meal is usually the meal that gets prepped for the staff that they eat before um, you guys come in to dine. Uh, not every restaurant does it, but every good restaurant does it. Um, so I think those are good ways. And another way is just to like look into whether or not your city offers composting, because oftentimes it's just making a phone call and getting that extra um, bin in your restaurant and then giving your staff the education. Um, and that can cut down on, on so, so much um, food waste, because even though you're still throwing out some things, they're going into the ground, into the garden, into a farm, rather than into a landfill. So I think those are easy steps that are fun and useful and attainable. So today your book, Bread and Roses, will be out. This is Bread and Roses, 100 Grain Forward Recipes featuring global ingredients and botanicals. Talk to us about this book and what you wanted to convey to the public with this book. Yay, book birthday. Yay. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> I know. Um, I, I wrote this book over the last two years. Um, it's been uh, a lot of work. Writing a book is a lot of work, but it really is a culmination of basically the last 12 years in this industry, cooking and my understanding of different grains um, from my world travels. And also, as I said, growing up with a mother who was already sort of geared towards that. Um, and I think it's it's similar to all my other uh, motivations. Like I want to, again, champion the things that I think that are fantastic and beautiful, and we've just lost them on our plates. And uh, for me, you know, working with doughs as my primary thing, whether that's cooking or baking, usually it's 80% something that has zero flavor, zero nutrition, and it's quite difficult to eat, which is all purpose flour. Um, so yeah. that for me is like such a huge opportunity to insert flavor and nutrition that I just think like, why wouldn't you? And so that's really the approach in terms of like getting you excited about whole grains is like you have this opportunity to eat more for it to be more delicious, more nutritious, more digestible, but just more, more, more. And who doesn't want to eat more? <laughs> so I'm I'm really excited about pe for people to um, explore these whole grains um, and really see them in the context, because I think that oftentimes when we're learning something new, it can feel like there's no clarity and it's a lot of noise. Um, and so uh, because I really like to keep things in context and center them in the cultures they're from, again, from my work as a human rights lawyer, um, this book is organized globally. So you are going to encounter these grains in the regions of the world that they're from, paired with produce from the regions of the world that they're from, and then finally paired with botanicals. Um, a lot of flowers, a lot of leaves, a lot of stems. Um, another thing that we've sort of lost in our common um, food ways, uh, we think of flowers on a plate as like fine dining, Michelin, 11th Madison Park kind of situation. Um, not for your everyday eating, but again, if you go, if you travel and you go to different cultures, there is so many flowers and different parts of herbs on the plate because it's usually free. You just go collect it. And it is so special and ephemeral and telling of like that 
week in the season. Um, and there are days set aside for communities to go off into the mountains and gather different flowers. This is true of Sweden, of Lebanon, of Japan. And to put those on your plate, um, yes, because it's beautiful, but also because everything flowers. So the blossom or the leaf is going to taste the same as the fruit or the vegetable. It's just going to have a different experience, a lighter experience. Um, so that's really where the idea of bread and roses came from, is to kind of give back to our food systems these really delicious and beautiful things that we've we've just lost track of. Um, and I hope that through the use of the beautiful illustrations from Stacy Michelson, um, you learn a lot about where all of your favorite foods come from and how rich every bioregion of the world is. And uh, one of the fundamentals of food, which is that what grows together goes together. So I really hope that um, this book can be a jumping off point for people's own creativity and adventures with all these tools that I put in there. You cook with some grains that a lot of people are not familiar with, um, like buckwheat, uh, barley flour, brown, brown rice flour, spelt. You also have specific grains like uh, Sonora and sweet corn flours. Can you talk about that a little bit and the challenges of working with these grains, but also reason for people not to be afraid of them? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing is that for people to understand that when they're working with whole grains, they're moving from a commodity to a commodity product to an agricultural product. And what that really means is that when we're talking about commodities, they're standardized. So you can grab almost any bag of whole grain or even whole wheat on the shelves, which is not actually whole grain. Um, sorry, you can grab almost any bag of all-purpose or whole wheat, which is not whole grain, on the shelf and use it anyway, and, and it'll work. We've standardized that product. But with an agricultural product, we're thinking more like uh, grains as another fruit or vegetable, and those things change from year to year. So you have to be a little more involved, um, a little more responsive in your cooking to make sure that you're getting the most flavor um, and the best technique out of it, right? Like you wouldn't cook all vegetables the same. You you roast some, you saute others. So similarly, um, once you can embrace the fact that grains are agricultural, that they're reflective of their terroir, that they have a season, um, I think you're able to more deeply appreciate uh, what they can be. And I have a, an incredible flower flower flavor wheel in the book to help you begin to develop your palate and taste for things because I think that your your love of flavor should guide you the most but because this is something totally new it'll take you a little to to build that flavor for the that palate for these subtle flavors um and I talk through in the book a lot of ways that a lot of qualities of the grain and a lot of ways you can apply that beyond the recipes. Um, but really like anything else, it's just about getting to know it, like doing it a couple of times, seeing how it works. If you like it, do you like the taste? Do you like the texture? Um, it's about having a, a whole other adventure in the kitchen and discovering this whole other area of delicious things that you have access to. Um, and I hope I provided some really great guides and that they are based in a lot of cultures that use these grains daily. So like if you, my hope is that if you fall in love with 
buckwheat that you go down a deep rabbit hole of what everyone in the world has made with buckwheat and not just like whoever's doing something fancy here in this country but how is it being used in japan how is it being used in the mediterranean for centuries um these are really great re resources history is a really great resource can I ask you who some of your inspirations uh, have been um, as, as a baker, um, some of the people that have really kind of inspired you over time and whose cookbooks really resonate with you? Yeah, I, I think the first person whose cookbooks really resonated with me was all of Peter Reinhardt's cookbooks. Yeah, yeah. I really loved his, just honestly, his adoration of bread, his, and I know that he's coming from like, he's a monk. So he yeah. has really, he's tying this really to spirituality, but um, it really resonated because it felt so incredible and magical and just like a gift. Um, and his guidance on uh, baking was so gentle, whereas oftentimes in other books, I found it was very severe of like this is the only way and it's 40 pages long so pay attention he was very much like you know what bread wants to happen you're just a participant and I thought that was a much more beautiful way to like explain bread and more truthful because honestly we came upon bread most likely because someone fell asleep in the hot sun with their por porridge and it baked into bread and we were just like magic and it was forever <laughs> until we could explain it. And I think the thing that um, I loved about Peter was that even though he could explain it, it was still magic. And oftentimes when we're able to explain something, I think as humans, we lose that wonder. And I really want to center everything in wonder and joy. So Peter, love Peter, would love to meet him one day, almost met him a couple of times. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, I really love a lot of the women working in whole grains and um, sourdough. Sarah Owens has been a longtime friend. She's written a couple cookbooks on the subject of early flowers and recipes. Um, so I've loved collaborating with her over the years. Um, I was also a big fan of the Flavor Flowers book by Alice Murdoch, who kind of really early on introduced people to the idea of not only what we call as alternative grains, although I hate whole grains having to bear the burden of that adjective, um, yeah. the very idea that anything could really be a flower, like grind down nuts, you have a flower, grind down peas, you have a flower, and just really opened up that concept of flower. Um, so I thought that was that was really crucial as well. Um, and then, you know, not specifically a whole, like not specifically aimed at whole grains and sourdough, but Heidi Swanson, all of her books about supernatural every day, and just, again, uh, making people appreciate a lot of um, things that we don't see necessarily on the grocery shelves that are that are coming back because people know them again and they can demand them. And, you know, that's how the economy works. They're going to they're going to be provided to us if we demand them. So, um, yeah, all those books are, are treasures for me. Now, you mentioned that today is the book's birthday, and it must feel like you've been carrying a book to term for a couple of years. Uh, <laughs> I've heard so many people talk about that saying like, it's like giving birth or having a child. What's next for you now that this uh, book is out to the world? Uh, well, I'm going on tour and I'm really excited to be in all these different cities around the nation and meet people and talk about this book and see their excitement for whole grains. 
Um, and then I am really looking forward to writing another book. Honestly, I, I nice. love the process. I really enjoy uh, writing. Don't get me wrong. It was definitely akin to childbirth. It was hard. Yeah. It was long. I am thrilled it has a birthday. Um, but there is something really beautiful about being able to put down into words like a recipe that fills you with warmth and joy that you've seen people love and appreciate and think that because of the book, not only is it now memorialized, but it can be amplified in your home. Like I, I am just like, I'm going to be a puddle of tears as I see people bake from this, because for me, that's all I want. I want to see these recipes make you excited make you have new flavor experiences in your mouth that you haven't had forever. There's like very few opportunities to try something you've never had before for a lot of people. So like, this is a whole world for that. So I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait either. I, I, I look forward to seeing um, what you produce in the future. And I'm so glad your book is out and I can't wait to hear what people have to say about it. As a librarian, I'll be really excited to promote your book and have people read it. So thank you for that. And thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you so much. Librarians are my favorite. <laughs> I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. And I want to let everybody know we do have links in the bio to get the book. So you can get it right off the bat or you can get it from all better bookstores. Rose, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. That was my conversation with Rose Wild. Her book, Bread and Roses, 100 Grain Ford Recipes featuring global ingredients and botanicals is out now. We have a link to it in the bio, and like I said, you can get it at all better bookstores. Next week, we'll be speaking with Vanessa Baca. She is one of she is the head of Food and Books podcast, as well as one of the co-anchors um, of Fear Feasts podcast. She'll be on next week for kind of a Halloween episode. Until next week, I'll see you at the library. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.